You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Hi, I'm Linda Sharkey, and welcome back to another episode of Future Proof Workplace. And Morag, what a week we've had. I mean, I just got back from London from the Thinkers 50 conference, and our book, Future Proof Workplace, was, I have to say, a real buzz at the uh, at the conference. And it was such a thrill to be there with the top 100 of the top 10 uh, guru thinkers in, in the world, and Tom Peters was there, and how exciting to hear from him. So what's been going on in your world? Well, for once, I haven't been on an airplane, so I have been here, home in Colorado, uh, delivered a leadership program yesterday on the Ally Mindset, uh, concepts from my first book, which was very well received, but I've been working diligently on designing a new leadership academy for a technology client that we're going to be piloting in the spring. So it's been nice to be at home but also feeling very productive and collaborative in designing a new program. Yeah, I I love that, especially when you take your content and you're able to put it into something really exciting that can sing people. And, and you know, I, I don't think you can go, but I'm, I'm going for us. I'm going to be going to the uh, Cognizant uh, Center for Future of Work conference, which anybody who hasn't logged in should check this out. It's at the Cosby Street Hotel in New York City on November 30th. And it is really about the 21 jobs of the future and what to do when machines do everything, um, along with tactics to survive in the future. And I'm going to be on the, the panel up there talking about a number of the things that we recommend in, in our in our book, which is really pretty exciting. It's November 30th and uh, Cognizant is putting it on along with Duke Co- Corporate Education. So that should be really a lot of fun. I'm looking forward Sounds to it. exciting. I look forward to hearing about some of the conversations and debates that are happening about the future of work. Yeah, well, you will. Of course, I will fill you in and we'll talk about it again on the show after it's over. So I am so excited. This this week we have uh, Dr. Peter Fuda. And as you know, Morag, I met Peter uh, at the uh, Culture Ultimate Culture Conference in uh, Cal- in Chicago a while back. And I've been so anxious to have him on our show because I've heard so much about him. And it's just been incredibly exciting to hear him speak. Um, I think... Peter is, um, he's just wonderful about the transformation of leadership teams and entire organizations. He's got years and years of experience. He has more than 50 case studies of large scale business transformation and more than a thousand cases of senior leadership transformation in some of the world's leading companies. His success rate is 90%, which is pretty good. Pretty good. When most statistics show that uh, organizational change um, are less successful, that's stellar. I can't wait to learn more from Peter. Uh, me, me either. It is pretty <laughs> stellar. We capture a number. We should capture a number like that somewhere. <laughs> but that's pretty exciting. And coaching 250 CEOs, that's also pretty exciting. Uh, he's got a best-selling book. And uh, Peter, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Morris. Lovely to be here. 
So I tell you, I'm just Morag. I'm just going to jump in, and I know you've got a lot of questions on the t- on the tip of your your tongue as well. But so, what what got you started in the study of business and leadership transformation? I mean, how, how'd you go in that direction? Uh, well, it started uh, many moons ago. Now, almost 20 years ago, I was um, 25 year old. Um, Hypo in uh, in a big bank here. Uh, hypo probably more uh, hyperactive than high potential. Uh, and uh, about a year after that, I got put through a, a leadership um, leadership process, and I got some feedback. My first 360 degree assessment showed that uh, I was very high uh, in uh, in an achievement orientation, which was excellent. But uh, my more humanistic uh, instincts weren't really there, and I had a wonderful CEO at the time who said, um, "Peter, you know you're you're, uh, you're destined for some decent things in this place, but while your feedback looks like this, I'll never give you a team." <laughs> and that was pretty uh, pretty Harsh. confronting feedback for wow. a 25, 26 year old to receive. So um, I decided it's that I would. Uh, I, made a, I made a commitment. At, it's better to get that at 26 than at 46. Look at the bright side. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. I, I came up with two resolutions, which was the first was that I was going to try and master this leadership caper. Uh, and the second one was that if I ever did do that, I would want to share these learnings with, you know, 14 and 15 year olds, not uh, not with 25 and 26 year olds, which I which I ended up doing. So that was kind of the, the genesis of the journey. At 28 years old, I was um, head of the change function in that bank. And I, my job was to get 30,000 people aligned to the CEO strategy. And at 29 years old, I jumped out to start my consulting business. And now some 18 years later, here we are. Isn't it amazing how quickly time flies? It sounds like you and I have a similar start in life. I was planning to be an engineer, but actually spent 15 years in commercial banking in the UK, similar to you, and uh, was looking at the clients and great ideas, great products, great services. But ultimately, they weren't giving the same care and attention to the leadership lark, as you described it. And as a result, their performance was being undermined. So that's why I moved from the numbers side to the people side. And I love the fact that you own there that the feedback was you're not a people person at the beginning, but uh, you've obviously learned and honed that skill over the years. So why? Well, you know, why, the saying is. Yeah, go on. Sorry, Sorry I was going to say that this, this, the old saying goes that we all teach what we most need to learn, right? <laughs> yes. yes. But in your introduction there, Peter, you mentioned that your your target was to bring that leadership learning to essentially high school students, teenagers. And so you're now talking about learning the skills we most need, but now teaching them to what might be one of the most challenging audiences. So what's the appeal for bringing leadership skills to 15-year-olds? Oh, well, look, I started, uh, well, that was the inspiration, but I started um, a foundation about uh, eight or 10 years ago now, where we took um, identified student leaders from um, sort of disadvantaged schools in, in the region uh, where I live, and we put them through a whole process over three months and then linked them up with CEO mentors and uh, had them do these amazing things in their local communities, which we, we did this for about eight years eight years solid. And the interesting thing is that I find them much easier to work with than CEOs and senior executives. 
Okay. Well, I suppose they're eager to learn, and certainly the clients I'm working with are, are seeing a desperate need. We're still focused far too much on book learning. And uh, I know that teenagers and those entering the workforce, whether it's straight from high school or university, are ripe for helping them to work at the how of business, not just the what of business. So, uh, Linda, describe for us your obsession with transformation, both of leaders, teams, and entire organizations. So, in the more than 50 years that you have been focused on your research and working with clients in this area, what have been some of the most important learnings that you've uncovered around transformations? So maybe I'll share with you what I think are kind of my two most important learnings. The first is that transformation is not a matter of intention. It's a matter of alignment. Why do I say that? Uh, because every leader I've ever met has noble intentions. This may shock your listeners, but I've never met the leader who aspires to destroy shareholder value, irritate customers, and alienate staff, I, I even agree. though many, yeah. many are quite successful. So in doing that, uh, so it's not a matter of intention, it's a matter of alignment. If, if I was to put up the aspiration statements of every big corporation we've ever worked with, you'd be hard-pressed to figure out the industry, let alone the company, Leaders aspire to similar things. So it's not a matter of intention. It's a matter of alignment. Um, the second thing I would say is, which is perhaps a little more hopeful, is that I've learned that success is much closer than we might think. And I often use the metaphor of 2%. Uh, and I'll share with you um, a little story, Morag, from your neck of the woods, which is one of the ways I like to um, exemplify this. So you would probably know um, the gentleman called David Brailsford, who... Um, in 2010, was appointed the new GM for Team Sky, the cycling team. Yes. And when he yes. Was, yeah. So when he was appointed, no British cyclist had ever won the Tour de France, and he was asked to deliver one within five years. So he started by doing the same things that everybody else does, optimizing nutrition, training, all of that stuff. But he didn't stop there. He looked at things like some very small 2% things like, what's the pillow that gives the athletes the best night's sleep? Which massage gel creates the fastest wow. recovery. How do, we te- how do we teach these guys to wash their hands so that they stave off infections? And he was relentless, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these two percenters. In the end, it turns out that the goal was wrong. He was able to win the Tour de France within three years, the wow. same year that he led the British cycling team to 70% of the gold medals on offer at the Olympics, and he's now won four of the last five Tour de France's. And so the concept is, the learning is, Success is not one big thing. It's the aggregation of marginal gains. It's a, it's a very large number of very, very small adjustments that creates the momentum that enables transformation to happen. So that would be my, my two most important learnings. What I love about the examples you gave there, it wasn't just about making the bike go faster or making the muscles stronger, the obvious process and systems involved in a sport. It was also the subtle pieces around the mental agility of the athletes there, the fact that they're better rested on the pillow that gives them the sleep, the fact that they are relaxed or recovering quicker from training because of the massage oil that's being used. It's those the ripple effect, as you say, of the, the little things that mount up to the effective transformation versus looking for the one big silver bullet um, that many make the mistake of going on the search for. Linda, I'm sure you've got another question for Peter at this point. 
Well, you know, I I think that that was a great summary, and I, but I'm wondering, you know, this ninety percent success rate that is a that is an astounding number, and the reason I say that is because all the literature, as you well know, Peter, uh, points to most transformation, most change initiatives really are marginally successful. What is the secret sauce in your and in, in, in how you think about approaching this? And I, I know you, you go for the edges, but what, what's the real secret sauce? Well, just among us on this, uh, on this uh, radio show, hey, so just among friends, I'll share with you the real truth of, of the answer is that I dramatically stack the odds. <laughs> and, by, <laughs> and by stacking the odds, I mean, and and that statistic, I mean, we do our our strike rate in leadership transformation is even higher than that. But I'm talking about large scale business transformation. The topic that most people would say, you know, that's the typically quoted statistic is 70% fail. So the 90% relates to those. Yeah. And the way the way I stack the odds is, firstly, we will only work with the business owner, the CEO. Yeah. Uh, number one. So it can't come via strategy or HR or anywhere. It has to be absolutely owned by the CEO, which is not new news to most people. However, I'm looking for two things in that CEO. I'm looking for what I would call a big why and a big yes. And so let me explain. And this is a bit different to how most consultants engage with a client. So when I say a big why, what I'm looking for is is this does this CEO have both a burning platform and a burning ambition? And are that do they have that burning platform and burning ambition at the level of the organization and personally? So if a CEO is not prepared to talk to me about what they are personally fearful of, then I know that's not a CEO for this work. If I'm talking to a CEO who won't be honest with me about what their personal ambition is, that's not a CEO who's aligned. So if you think about it as a four-quadrant matrix, we're trying to shift people from a burning platform to a burning ambition and from just organization-level uh, intent and motivation to personal intent and motivation. So if I can fill all four quadrants, if a CEO is prepared to be open about those four things, mm-hmm. then I've got the potential. Then the next thing I'm going for is a big yes. And, you know, you guys would know sometimes as consultants, you know, we we want the next gig. And so we can be tempted to convince ourselves that somebody's up for it when maybe they're not. And so the early days where where I had the failures, I was convincing myself that I could help this person, you know, develop the motivation or develop the energy to do the work when, in fact, I found out I never really can. And so one of the things that I do early on, rather than try and convince them that this is going to be great and, you know, the first day is going to be magical and the next month is going to be awesome and the first year is going to be even better than that. Yeah. I, I do the exact opposite. I talk to them about what our three worst days are going to be like together. So I'll say to them, you know, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, what happens when I find out that you're the problem or you're a large part of the problem? How will you feel when I tell you that? What will you do then? And what will, what will you do when, when one of my colleagues says that, two-thirds of your leadership team are not up for it. What, what, at that moment, how will you feel? What would you do? And if that excites you, then this could be a magical partnership. If that terrifies you, this we should absolutely not engage. So mm-hmm. big why, big yes, that's the first thing. And then the second thing, the second way that I kind of stack the odds is I'm very clear on my selfish motivation. We're fortunate that we don't need another retainer. What we want are more case studies of transformation. 
So when I come on a lovely show like this, good people like yourselves quote some great statistics because that obviously creates a kind of an energy all of itself. And so what I will say to the CEO that I'm speaking to is if we were sitting here in two or three years' time talking about the case study of transformation in your organization, what would that case study be? And unless we can see ourselves on a stage together sharing that case study and he can articulate it or she can articulate it very clearly, then again, uh, it's not worth our us engaging. So I'm shifting the goal from let's form a, a consulting partnership to let's engage in a journey to transformation with somebody who really wants to do it and who is really up for it. That's kind of my secret sauce, just among us. Just amongst us and Peter, I love it and listening to that. And uh, we're about to go to a break. And when we come back, you mentioned something in, in your qualification process around the big why, that burning platform and burning ambition. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about what those mean and what they look like when we come back from our break. But for everybody, you're listening to okay. The Future Proof Workplace with Dr. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. And our guest this week is Dr. Peter Fuda, who is sharing his experience and expertise in both organizational and leadership transformation. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey and my co-host, Morag Barrett. We're talking to Peter Fuda, Dr. Peter Fuda, an expert in leadership and transformation. And Peter, you, you know, you were sharing a, a secret about, and it's a consulting secret that I think really good consultants understand, is that they just don't jump into engagements. My good friend, Marshall Goldsmith, he says the same thing. He said, you know, I have a great success rate in coaching executives. And the reason is, is because I pick great people to coach who really want to change. And it sounds like you do the same thing, that you're doing a great deal of assessment and engagement up front before you even take on, um, you know, before you even take on the engagement. Are there many that you turn down? Do you actually, and do you actually, after you go through this, these uh, four big, uh, the big why, the big yes, et cetera, the ambition, are there many that you turn down? And what do you, what happens when you turn that down? Um, look, you know, the interesting thing is, so the, the short answer is that, you know, in our consulting practice, we only have room because they're large scale engagements. Um, and I'm focused on creating case studies you know, blood, you know, evidence of transformation, not yeah. just filling a pipe full of, you know, and having a thousand consultants. Um, what ends up happening is that the, the, the other party will often come to the conclusion that this is not for them. I won't even have to say it. Or it may be that it's not for them right now. The other thing is that, you know, often we're, we're, we, you know, we run pretty close to full most of the time. So when I'm meeting with a prospective client, often I don't even have a capacity to, um, to take them on board as a client anyway. 
So what I'm trying to do is add value to that individual. And what it does is it changes the dynamic of the conversation quite dramatically. Rather than, you know, the CEO is in a position of power because they can have whatever consultant and so on, we come to the table as equals. Now, obviously, as a business owner, that's a great thing. But frankly, to all the consultants on the on the line, as you guys would know, it's actually critical to have that shared power if you're actually going to do this kind of work. Yeah. So what Sense. I'm trying to do, given I'm, yeah, given I'm starting from the point where what I want at the end of this is a case study of transformation, I'm working all the way back to say, do I have a client who is prepared to share the power with me, who is prepared to take very direct feedback, who's prepared to be pushed and push me in return? until we create this outcome that we both want. And so what tends to happen is people pick themselves in or out, but I'm always trying to add value and insight to that conversation. So that person is better equipped, whether they work with me or work with someone else or go on their own journey, they're better placed to go on that pathway. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your your beginning relationship with them is an intervention in and of itself. And it's, a, it's an intervention of of discovery for them too, to really determine where they are in this change process. And, and if, and if they're really got the intestinal fortitude to see it through, I think it's a, a brilliant uh, way to approach any client. And I love that they probably do more self-select out than, um, than, than you have to do that yourself. So Morag, I know you've got something on your mind. Well, yes, it goes back to something you've said earlier, and even the self-selection piece. You'd mentioned the phrases burning platform and burning ambition earlier on. So my guess is that those that self-select out uh, are a no to one or both of those. But can you explain what a burning platform and what, how is that similar or different to burning ambition? Yeah, so burning platform is, my guess is it's probably the most pervasive uh, metaphor in, in business certainly uh, that, that, you know, I ever hear people talk about. And um, it was it was um, popular. It's about a, an oil rig disaster, the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster, which is a, quite a long story, but your listeners could go and, and look it up. Uh, or on my YouTube channel, I've got a, a kind of a video summary of this metaphor, the fire metaphor. But basically, um, it was popularized by uh, uh, Cotter as his kind of first or second step to change. And so everybody runs around trying to find the burning platform. And it's meant to be a metaphor for urgency, uh, for, sorry, for commitment. But what it ends up being is a metaphor for urgency. urgency. And so what we found yep. in our research was that with every successful transformation effort that we've been in, involved in, and this was my doctoral research, at some point, while a burning platform may have got people started on the journey, at some point, every successful transformation turned into a burning ambition, a desire-driven motivation for change, not a fear-driven motivation for change at some point. Uh, and then what we found was that of all the factors that enable transformation, and I write about in a leadership context, I write about seven of them in the book in the form of metaphors, that the fire, the big why, is more important than every other factor combined. In fact, without the big why, all other factors are redundant. Tools, tactics, authenticity, momentum, alignment, it's all a waste of time if we do not have a big why. So, so Peter, 
tell me a little bit about that. Describe for me what, what, how you get someone to arrive at that big why and what, what a big why looks like for, for a CEO. So if I sit down with um, a, a prospective client, a CEO in my office, and I'll say to them, so why are we here? Why are we having this conversation? With, with a high degree of certainty, the next things that come out of his or her mouth will be about organization-level burning platform factors. Mm-hmm. Um, our, competitors are, uh, our competitors are more aggressive. Uh, our customers are squeezing us. Uh, our board is putting pressure on us. The market forces are going against us. New technology is disintermediating us. It will all be about stuff that is out there and fear-based, the things that are happening to us. So that's yeah. what we would call quadrant one, an organization-level burning platform. And, you know, you, you, between disruption, disintermediation, globalization, everything, you, you guys, it's a well-worn, well, well-worn story. So then what I will say is, tell me, What's keeping you awake at night? What are you fearful about? What is worrying you personally? And they'll say things to me. If they're prepared to be honest, they will say things like, uh, I'm exhausted. You know, I, I wanted this job my whole life. And now that I've got it, I, you know, I, I'm, my relationships are in trouble or my health is not good or I'm working harder than I ever have in my life. I feel I've got a game I can't win. Um, my board's putting pressure on me. I'm, I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about my reputation if this goes wrong. So now I've got a personal burning right. platform. We've got high stakes for the individual. Yep. Now what I want to do, that's quadrant two. So we're going down. Now what I want to do is move across to the right, to quadrant three, which is a personal burning ambition. And this is where it starts to shift, where the energy shifts. And I might say to that leader, tell me what you are personally most passionate about. And selfishly, if this goes really well, what does it look like for you? What do you get as a result? Well, you know, I, I want to be a highly regarded CEO. I want to get my boss's job. I want a great reputation in the market. I want to set up my board career, whatever it might be. But very honest, selfish motivations for change that are desire-driven, moving towards something. And you can imagine the energy starts to change here. And then we go up to quadrant four, the last quadrant, which is above. And I say, now tell me about the legacy you want to leave in this organization. What does it look like if it goes really well? And then they'll say things like, you know, I want to to leave a place behind that is thriving. I want to grow uh, our returns to our shareholders. I want to increase employee commitment. I want to create succession. I want to empower the next level of leaders. I want to impact society. I want to impact our community in positive ways and so on and so on. And so now what we have is a kind of a smiley face. And it usually happens in that order where we have the left side is the burning platform, the right side is the burning ambition. Above the line is organization. It's quite safe. It's out there. Below the line is very personal. So I will do that. And if the the CEO can articulate that in very honest, robust terms, then I know we've got the potential for something. I also don't mind telling you guys, when we do contract and we start with the organization, that is the first exercise we will do with the executive team as a whole. We will take them through a fire exercise. And so now what we have is a motivation that will sustain us when times get tough, which they inevitably will. We come back to that fire and that keeps us going no matter what. 
Well, that's interesting because I was listening to you and, of course, the initial description when the CEO says, well, I'm exhausted and this was more complex than I expected or I'm feeling like an imposter, even with the passion of that end goal, we all know that transformation organizationally and personally is exhausting. So how do you and how do you help them to develop that resilience, to keep going in the face of adversity? Uh, well, there's, there's kind of maybe two or three answers to that question. The first is that uh, I would use a tactic that I call normalizing assumptions, normalizing assumptions. And normalizing assumptions is most CEOs are not experts in transformation. They're experts in retail or energy or whatever. We are supposed to be the experts in transformation, whatever that, that means to us as, as consultants and, and coaches. And so if, if I've been on a journey of, you know, if I've done this a thousand times, then it's my responsibility to help create meaning for that CEO and the lens by which they look at this. So if they become disappointed at how long it's taking or how hard it's, I can normalize the assumption and say, this is perfectly normal in a journey of transformation. Here's what happens and here's what's going to happen next. And as I said before, I'm starting to do that before we even engage. This is what our tough days are going to look like. This is, so I'm always anchoring back to a different mm -hmm. reality. So that's number one. The second thing is I started by saying it's not a matter of intention, it's a matter of alignment, and it's the aggregation of marginal gains. And so the answer is pick the next three two percenters. And then when you do those, pick the next three after that. And we keep picking the next two or three that keep us moving in a positive direction because we never know when the tipping point is going to happen. But when it does happen, there's no looking back. It's big and it's fast. The, um, yeah. yeah the, the final thing that I'd say is, and maybe um, let, me, let me give you a little analogy that tends to work for people. So when people, when, when I'm, you know, leaders or other consultants are saying, but it's so hard and it's taken a long time, I often use this analogy because all of us, well, many of us have children and all of us were children at some point mm -hmm. in time. So I will ask them, I'll ask them, how long did you give your child to walk? Or how long, you know, did you take to walk? And they'll say, well, that's a ridiculous question. Of course, we don't put a time frame on it. Why? Well, because firstly, it's not optional. And secondly, we're pretty certain that they're going to get there at some point. How many times do they fall down in the process? Countless number of times. They go from crawling, face planning. They try to pull themselves <laughs> up using the couch. They face plan again. They try, they fall over and over again. Now, here's the interesting thing. As parents, at no time do we ever consider saying to them, look, it. Junior, this walking thing's not, not for you. <laughs> uh, you've tried your best, but ma you know, maybe you should stick with the crawling, right? Yeah. Now, maybe you should crawl the rest of your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, everybody laughs when I do that, right? Everybody laughs. And it sounds absurd, but of course, that's exactly the type of thinking that we apply as adults to our lives. If we don't master something very, very quickly, all of us, Nope, not doing that. It's not for me. It's too embarrassing. I'll look like an idiot. I'll never get it. You know, if as children we behave like we do as adults, most of us would still be crawling. Yep. The interesting thing is the opposite is true for the people we most admire. They exhibit an almost irrational relentlessness. Um, you know, lots of people know it took Edison a thousand times to figure out the light bulb, but history is littered with them. Walt Disney was fired by his newspaper editor because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. Einstein didn't speak until he was four and didn't read until he was seven. And, you know, when he was asked later in life, I love this about his genius, the source of it, he said, 
I just keep asking questions long after everybody else has given up. Stopped. I just think, what if all these people are not irrational? Mm-hmm. What if they're just relentless? What if they're just mm-hmm. relentless? What if they're just like our children who keep going, no matter how many times they fall, they just rise to their feet? So that's kind of the attitude that, that I personally bring to it, a relentlessness. It's not for everybody, uh, but I've certainly found out a, a very useful tactic for myself and for uh, all of the leaders that I, I work with, particularly when they encounter tough times. You know, Peter, we I, I just love that because resilience versus relentless. I mean, there's a there's an interesting juxtaposition there, really. But we're we're going to break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about some of the failures that you might have experienced and what were the lessons that you learned from that. So we are talking to Dr. Peter Fuda, an expert in leadership transformation. Um, you're on Future Proof Workplace, and stay with us, Morag and I, uh, for the next session. We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future-Proof Workplace is your wake-up call because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Hi, welcome back to Future Proof Workplace with uh, Morag Barrett and myself. We're talking to Dr. Peter Fuda. We're talking about actually resilience and relentlessness and Really, you know, as a kid, you don't really realize that you can't do something. You just keep trying. And that's a that's a trait, I think, that is a wonderful trait to carry through life if you can be fortunate enough to do that. But, but Peter, what I wanted to get into is, you know, you've had tremendous success, obviously, in, in what you're doing. You have a wonderful diagnostic model, which I absolutely love. But tell us about some of the failures that you've had in a 15 year career. I know I've had some more. I I know you've had some. (laughs) Yes. Unfortunately, what have, what have you learned from those? Yeah. So uh, the first thing to say is that most of the failures were earlier on and they were earlier on because of the reasons we spoke about already where I did not, I convinced myself that this client, this company was up for it when really I was more motivated about their company than they were. So putting those aside, maybe I'll share with you a little story, which is kind of how this all started. Um, And it's kind of my most profound learning still today. So when I left the the job at the bank, I was just 29 years old, uh, but I was riding the wave of a big story of transformation, which I had played a part in. So as I stepped out into consulting, the first interest I received was from other financial institutions, in particular, um, one bank in particular. And so, uh, uh, and the CEO office in particular of that bank. So a couple of weeks later, I found myself in the lobby of this bank. It was my first potential consulting client. And the first thing I noticed as I was waiting there was mahogany wood everywhere. Not just the reception <laughs> desk, but the walls, the ceiling, everywhere. Right? I Sounds got, like my bank. Down a mahog- <laughs> yeah, it, 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 should, it should have been a sign. It should have been a sign. But anyway, uh, uh, I got led down a mahogany hallway, up a mahogany lift, down another mahogany hallway, finally to the mahogany clad executive floor, half of the executive floor was reserved for the CEO that I was going uh, to see. Yes. 
Of course, there was a huge mahogany desk outside his office. It was presided over by his assistant, who really did not look like the happiest camper in the world, in front of huge mahogany doors. So after a whole bunch of time, she let me in, closed the doors behind me, and I found myself in this office that was probably bigger than my first home. And he was way over the other side. He didn't even look up. And I thought, you know, what do I do? Do I go over there? Do I stay here? So finally he looks up. Bear in mind, this is my first prospecting opportunity, right? 29 years old. Yep. And he looks up at me and from the other side he says, what are you doing here? Who, who are you? And I say, uh, you asked me to come here. You wanted to talk about engaging and aligning your employee. Oh, he says, oh, yes, yes, sit down. So I made the long walk over there and I said, asked him a simple <laughs> question. I said, so what's the issue? He takes off his glasses, he starts to go red in the neck and the face, and he starts banging the table, and he says, I don't know why my effing people won't take any effing initiative. Wow. Call it like he sees it. Right. Exactly. And I said, uh, I think I know why. And so that ended up being the shortest meeting in the history of my life. Right, I was ejected from that room very quickly, and I used to tell that story very, very proudly. You know, and I'd feel vindicated. Now, obviously, that CEO was creating the exact culture that so frustrated him. People were terrified of him. The more aggressive he became, the more passive they became, which meant they were more aggressive, which meant he was more aggressive, and it was a downward spiral of stupidity. But actually, it's not just a story about the limits of his capability as the CEO, but also mine as a change agent. This was the first big meeting of my consulting career. I was trying to project an image of confidence and credibility. And as soon as he treated me with any kind of indifference, the little confidence that I had had unraveled and then my ego took over. And at that point, I just wanted to save face. And so we were two people operating operating at the limits of our capability, creating a mess. Yep. It, it, it ended badly. It ended badly. But it taught me a lesson that's really served me well ever since. And that is, I learned that we all do the best we can with what we know. We all do the best we can with what we know. And what that gave me was the gift of empathy, the gift of empathy for others, for the, the CEOs that I've met since that time who behaved like that CEO. It's given me the gift of empathy for them. So when I see a CEO banging the table now, what I see is my little my daughter when she was five years old and she didn't have the emotional capacity to express herself. And I'm able to empathize with that rather than have fear myself. But I, frankly, I've also had, you know, developed some empathy for myself. So when I make a mess, when I am not perfect, I accept that I'm doing the best I can with what I know, which then allows me to to have a learning orientation rather than become overly perfectionistic and beat myself up. I love it. What a gift. That is just a wonderful gift. You know, how few people, really, you know, think that they're empathetic, but, but really don't have that at all. And that, that's quite, quite valuable. So you talk, Peter, mm. about uh, your clients and the focus is case studies. So tell us more about wh- why the focus for case studies and from those, what's the 2% that you're learning now that is accelerating transformation for the clients you're working with? Um, so the reason why case studies, well, it's, it's there's two reasons. One is a very selfish reason, which is um, the more case studies, the more that I, uh, the more that the phone rings and the less I have to do. And I'm <laughs> at 47, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm a bit old and lazy. And so 
when when the phone when CEOs are referring other CEOs or chairmen are referring other chairmen and they're calling into me and our team. The, the power relationship is already very different and, and it just yes. brings a very different energy to the way we can engage. Not not just from a commercial point of view, but I'm talking about actually the ability to do the work. Uh-huh. So we're able to deliver value more quickly. I think it was Linda who said earlier, it's almost like the first conversation becomes an intervention as yep. does the second, third, fourth and fifth before we even engage. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that what I'm personally very focused on, so I have six senior colleagues who actually do the work day-to-day, they all have two or three big clients that they look after. And I'm very conscious on how we behave in our engagements, very conscious. So I'm very very conscious, number one, that we are role models first and preachers second. Um, Would you like me to share a little story? Um, Yes. So there's, there's, as you can see, I like stories. It just uh, elucidates some of these concepts more interestingly than research. So there's one of my favorite stories is um, about this little boy in India many, many years ago who's addicted to sugar. You may have heard this story. And uh, his mother's going out of her mind. She won't give up sugar. It's rotting his teeth, making him sick. So out of desperation, she decides that they're going to walk across the blazing hot sun for several hours to uh, his hero, Gandhi, to see if they can get an audience with Gandhi so Gandhi will tell him to stop eating sugar. And uh, so they, one day they take off, four hours, blazing hot sun. They arrive at Gandhi's ashram. They wait another couple of hours. Finally, he sees them. He says, so why are you here? And the mother says, Gandhi, my son idolizes you. He's addicted to sugar. His health is going uh, very badly. Would you please tell him to stop eating sugar? And Gandhi looks at the boy, looks at the mother, and he says, come back in two weeks. So dutifully, they get up, they go all the way home. Two weeks later, they turn around, they come all the way back. Hours later, they see him and they say, Gandhi, do you remember we were here two weeks ago? He says, yes, yes, I remember. He looks at the boy and he says, don't eat sugar. And the boy says, yes, Gandhi. And the mother can't (laughs) help herself. She says, Gandhi, with the greatest of respect, could you not have told him that when we were here two weeks ago? And Gandhi looks at the mother and, and he says, yes, but I needed two weeks to give up sugar first. (laughs) <laughs> oh, we, we, yes. We, we have to be a role model to do this kind of work. We have to be a role model first and a preacher second. This is really hard to do. It's why doctors are usually the worst patients, why psychologists yep. usually have the most screwed up kids, and why consultants <laughs> usually run the worst companies. Right? Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, if I'm in a room of, you know, if I'm in a room of 500 people, this is last week, and I'm talking about. Um, talking about uh, values, the value of values. And I say to them, let's take one value. Let's take the value of integrity. And I'm going to say integrity is you do what you say you will. By a show of hands, how many of you would say that you are leaders of high integrity? 500 people put their hand up in an instant. Yep. Then I say, close your eyes, put your hands down, close your eyes. Now tell me, how many of you would consider that your colleagues share your same high level of integrity? When they open their eyes, only 30% of the hands are up. The problem is that we judge ourselves by our noble intentions. We judge everybody else by their actions. In other words, we have a lower standard, a lower benchmark for ourselves than we do for anybody else. And mm-hmm. to do this kind of work, it has to be the opposite. We have to have a higher, a higher standard. I actually, you know, to give you uh, a sense of where the darkness in me comes from, I learned this lesson as a six-year-old kid. You know, uh, I grew up with a very strong... Uh, mum, very strong Italian matriarch. 
And I remember this, it's my earliest childhood memory, being six years old in my bedroom, cold winter's day. I had a bit of a cough. It was probably early onset man flu and I didn't <laughs> want to go to school. Serious and stuff. So I stayed in, yeah, I stayed in bed a little too long and my mum came into the bedroom and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't feel very well. <laughs> and she looked at me with these steely eyes that she has and she said, don't go to school for me. It's not my education. And she walked out, which is wow. a hell of a mind trick to play on a six-year-old mm. kid, right? But I got my backside, backside out of bed and it's been the gift that's kept on giving. Have a higher standard for yourself than anybody else has for you. That would be the first one. Would you like me to do one more? Oh, yes, please. So I'll share with you um, a lovely parable that I love. So there's a five-year-old child in, this is really about how we think about leading others through change, right? Our clients. So there's a, a five-year-old, uh, five-year-old girl in the kitchen. She looks in the fruit bowl and there are two apples left. She grabs one in her right hand and one in her left hand. At that point, her mother comes in and says to her, sweetie, can I have one of the apples? The little girl looks at her mum, looks at her right hand, looks at her left hand. She proceeds to bite the apple in her right hand. Then she bites the apple in her left hand. Her mother shakes her head. She cannot believe her child has been so selfish. It's at that moment the little girl holds out the apple in her right hand and she says, here you go, mummy. This is the sweeter one. Oh, in, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a nice little parable. And the message yeah. is that the lesson is that we all judge things way too quickly and way too harshly. Yeah. And in any process of transformation, as change agents, we must always, always, always assume noble intentions in others. Yeah. Always, that. always assume noble intentions. If you will never hear me say that's good strategy, that's bad strategy, that's good leadership, that's bad leadership, that's right or that's wrong. You will only ever hear me say that's helpful or unhelpful given the aspirations you have, that's aligned or misaligned. I'm never, ever, ever questioning the intentions of the other person, which means they don't have to get defensive and defend their character. Yeah. And then we have a much higher take-up rate, much greater openness to change. They would be my probably my, of, you know, 200, yeah. they would be my top two. Thank you. Love both of those stories. Linda. They're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. Peter, we're coming to the end of the show, and it's been a great show. I just love your insight. Quickly. If you had three messages you wanted to leave with people, what would they be? Uh, well, I think I've, I've, I would come back to the three that I've most repeated in this conversation, which is success, transformation, whatever you want to call it, is not a matter of intention. It's a matter of alignment. And secondly, that alignment happens in many, 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 many small ways every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year to aggregate into a series of gains that produces a result. And then I think our challenge as change agents, and by change agents, I mean whether we are um, line managers or HR professionals or external consultants, I think our job is first to be a role model, a role model first and a preacher second. They would be my three messages. I think if we, if we stuck within, if we played within that Bermuda Triangle, um, you know, that's, that's probably 80% of it. Okay, yeah, thank, thank you. So, Peter, if we've got somebody listening who believes they truly have a big why and a big yes and that they need to get in touch with you or they're just curious to learn more, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, well, you can just uh, email me personally, uh, peter at peterfooder.com. Uh, you can go on to peterfooder.com. Uh, follow you know, all the different social media links. I believe you guys are, uh, are posting them up on your uh, 
on your website. And we, I do have um, something big coming along next year, which um, Linda knows a little bit more about, uh, in order to sort of scale the offering so that more people can get access to these um, these learnings and insights. Uh, and people can register their in, uh, their uh, interest for that. I think you guys are going to put up a link at the yes, end of the show, yes. um, which would probably be the easiest way. Kind of sort of middle yeah. of next year, I'll have something where all of this stuff can be accessible to a much bigger audience. Okay. Wow. Well, Peter, it has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise, the stories, the anecdotes. They really have brought it alive. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today on the Future Proof Workplace. Make sure to join us again next week for another engaging conversation. And in the meantime, remember that the future of work is not tomorrow. The future of work is today. Are you ready? This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.